Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Shop Pomeroy's First, Michael Lasicki. Michael Lasicki, author of Shop Pomeroy's First. What you got, got you interested in writing about department stores? That's always probably the $64,000 question because I never really quite know why. Um, I go back to my childhood and I just really enjoyed going somewhere else. My mother loved car trips. We would go on car trips. And it would, she would always say, well, where do you want to go? And I always had a choice of where I wanted to go, whether it was grocery stores or department stores. And I just always loved how there was an identity associated with these businesses. And um, whenever I give lectures, that's always one of the first questions I try to answer. But I'm never quite able to answer it. And it's just something you're wired, something you're wired to like. And this is what I like. And all these places have stories. And that's what I try to tell. What were the stores you went to when you were a kid? Well, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. Actually, people say, oh, you didn't grow up in Philadelphia because I grew up in New Jersey. New Jersey, we're still the Philadelphia area. But my mother's store was Strawbridge and Clothier. But of course, we bought our tires at Lip Brothers. We uh, went to the light show at Wanamaker's. Gimbel's budget store was where we, got, we were clothed. And occasionally, we would go to Willingboro, New Jersey, where there was Pomeroy's. What is Pomeroy's? And stuff like that starts to get me thinking, hmm. Let's learn a little bit more about these. And plus, we always expect these stores to be here forever. That was their role. That was their purpose. How dare they go away? What was Pomeroy's? Pomeroy's, well, probably best described by a former, um, former worker here in Harrisburg, uh, was a belly store. Belly store. Well, where's a belly in the body? It's right in the middle. And it, it was also a quality store. It, wasn't, it, it was something that carried goods for everybody but it was right in the middle, good quality, solid merchandise. You could say that about the people of Eastern Central Pennsylvania. I mean, it's not Reading, Harrisburg, Wilkes-Barre, they're not really, Wilkes-Barre, I always have to learn how to pronounce that correctly. Um, they're not the glamour cities that, where I've written stores about Boston and Washington, New York, Philadelphia, but they, are, they have full of proud people and full of stories, and Pomeroy's has some great stories. How big was it at its peak? Uh, Pomeroy's at its peak, uh, around 15 stores. And it encompassed the four central locations of started out in Reading, went to Harrisburg, and Pottsville, and Wilkes-Barre. And I'm always getting that correct. And then you look for a while, it was, and then it went into Levittown. Look at Levittown, 1955. Which Levittown? Levittown, Pennsylvania. I mean, that's, we can arguably say that's one of the birthplaces of American suburbia. And it was Pomeroy's that was selected to go into that shoparama. Bill Levitt liked the owner, felt it was a good shopping center developer, but also the department stores out of Philadelphia weren't sure it had the demographic that 
was going to suit um, the customers in the Levittown area. So Pomeroy's seemed like a good alternative. When did it get started? Pomeroy's dates from, and also I got to pronounce that correctly too, because many people say Pomeroy's. So, and it depends on, <laughs> on where, what city you're talking from. Uh, Pomeroy's um, 1876 in Reading was where it got its start. The three people, um, Josiah Dives, George Pomeroy, and John Stewart, not The Daily Show, John Stewart, obviously, um, became partners in a business there right at the center of the town there, Penn Square area in Reading. And it was two years later in 1878 where they came to Harrisburg. They came to Harrisburg because they felt there was an opportunity. And later on in 1885, they branched down to Potts Town. 87 was Pottsville. Always got to get your Potts communities correct there. And then spread to Wilkes-Barre in 1927. But each of these cities had its own headquarters. It wasn't a branch operation. I mean, yeah, Reading and Harrisburg are close together. I mean, in the, in the context of, of, of of directions and maps and whatnot, but they're two totally separate communities. And the company, the holding company, treated them as very two separate organizations with two separate identities. Was there one common identity that overlaid that? Well, I think it was the fact that it really catered to that middle working class customer that was looking for a good deal with quality goods. I mean, you weren't gonna see the French uh, French materials, the French gowns coming in through Pomeroy's. That wasn't who they were. And it, why, I mean, part of the success was they knew who they were. And if you try to be something you're not, look at retail these days. Whenever people try to be something that they're not the best at, look at what happens to them. So Pomeroy's knew, knew who they were, and that was part of its guide, and they had wonderful employee programs. Were they considered a department store early on? Well, it's hard to say like when department stores actually came to be. They always started off as dry goods stores. And then you see, I mean, a department store can carry ribbons and lace, and then they start carrying other like kitchen goods and, and blankets and towels, and they grow from there. And that's what happened with Pomeroy's. And um, that whole one price aspect, you look at all like successful department stores over the years, they always uh, embrace that one price for all because bartering was the, the way of the day at the time. And a lot of early successful retail techniques were used in Pomeroy's uh, locations, the early ones, and we're looking at Reading and Harrisburg, and that's what helped fuel their, their identity and their loyalty with the customers. Uh, when you would go in a Pomeroy's or the Dives Pomeroy and, and Stewart, Stewart yeah. what would the experience have been like? You walk in the door, what do you see? You see merchandise that wasn't available in other stores. That's probably the role of a department store at the time was to carry all types of merchandise. There wasn't, we didn't have suburban shopping centers with EJ Corvette in the outside carrying all these washing machines and, and whatnot. Um, this was the place where you bought unusual merchandise. Unusual meaning stuff that you couldn't get in your farm town or whatnot. That was their goal. And once you're in that store, they wanted to make sure you stayed in there. That's why you found these tea rooms and beauty salons and service, service. It's hard to find service these days, and, but service is expensive. So you have to have an investment there. So um, that was, that was the, point, the purpose of these places. Um, they were for everybody, and they carried this merchandise that was 
not easily available. You described the, the Reading store at one point as being seven stories tall, which had to be a skyscraper back then. Well, they call it, the, it was Reading skyscraper, and it's smack there, right in the center of, um, it was, I should say, right there in the smack of, in the middle of, of downtown Reading. You could not miss Pomeroy's, Pomeroy's. Um, you see the big sign as you're coming over that Penn Street Bridge. I mean, it just, these were institutions. These were institutions, this is what helped anchor downtowns. And the same can be said with, with Harrisburg. Uh, there was a little more competition in Wilkes-Barre, um, but Pomeroy's was still located on that, that public square. And, and you know, look at Philadelphia, look at those stores in Philadelphia, look at the stores in Pittsburgh, and that's just grabbing a few Pennsylvania cities. They were all prominent. Can you describe that shopping experience that you had as a kid when you would go into the city because people don't shop in the cities anymore? There isn't that mecca where you go in there and spend the day shopping. What was that like? Well, also, it wasn't just the experience. It was the loyalty. We don't have the loyalty anymore. And that was people had their favorite store. They would have their favorite sale that would draw them in. These stores had their own credit cards. They had their own shoppers, shopping base. And you knew your salesperson. You knew where things were. You didn't have a reason to go elsewhere. You'd spend the whole day. Now, I know a lot of people reminisce about, I mean, a lot of the people that read my books that are interested in them took streetcars. I'm not going to lie. I didn't take a streetcar. I took a station wagon. My mother drove a station wagon at the time, and that was my streetcar. And she didn't have any daughters. I didn't know my, I didn't have, like, her mother was not a part of my, part of my growing up. So instead of getting us all wearing gloves and taking a trip downtown, yeah, we would take especially the high speed line there in South Jersey to go into Philadelphia. And that was our special, that was our, that was social time. And whether it was driving to Cherry Hill Mall, that was our social time. And the one problem here as a boy, growing up as a boy, I don't know what we did in these places for hours. We didn't come out with bags and bags. It wasn't like today where you go to sales. I don't know what we did for hours, but it was fine. Whether that was social, I don't know. But we also had merchandise, whether it's toys, bakery, candy, and, and sporting goods and whatnot that a kid can get lost in. What are some of the things they carried that would be a surprise to us today? Some of the things that would be, well, I mean, I don't know if they want to consider, this will be a surprise today because there's barely anything called a bookstore anymore. And look at Pomeroy's here in Harrisburg, and it's also the, 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 the case in Reading. They would have the largest bookstore in the city. And also these stores had lending libraries because they didn't have the access as easily with public libraries. But look at the whole purpose of it. You have to return that book to the store. So that gets you back in there. A lot of um, uh, uh, the, the restaurants, we didn't have the culinary development, even like we're talking in the 30s and 40s. These large department stores, let's look at Philadelphia, the Crystal Tea Room in Wanamaker's, or the Corinthian Room in, at Strawbridge and Clothier, these were kind of the good restaurants in the city. And that was also a, something that it's hard to fathom as that being quality and unique these days. They, there was a reason to go to these stores. Maybe that's what's missing today. I mean, it's just the basics. The basics within reason are missing. How if that makes that? any sense. How do you mean that? Um, okay, 
Let's just I, 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 an hour ago. Let's just say an hour ago. Here I am. I went into a store, a large retailer. That should know better. Trust me, should know better. I went and asked a question about a merchandise. They said, no. Do you have this? No. I left. All I do is I walk to my car. I'm thinking of that woman that just said no. Working for a business that should know better. So that's the tainted aspect as I leave that store. I, she could have said, no, I'm sorry, we don't carry this. And maybe offer like a suggestion or, I mean, it doesn't, that little basic stuff is missing. And that's how I leave, I'm soured. So I don't know if that relates back to your initial question, but it is just the basics, that's what's missing. Well, how would uh, employees be taught to deal with customers back in the early days in the late 1800s? Um, well, especially as, uh, as, cust as, grow as the stores grow older, the families get larger. And I don't just mean the store families, I mean the employee families. And if you treat the employees like a family, then they're going to treat your, your bosses like a family, and that's going to spill over to how you treat customers. It's just kind of, um, I mean, you have to invest in your employees. And um, you know, people, people would, I mean, they would work there for just years and years and years, and you would try to get your, the younger members of the family, but you had employee stock options, you had employee discounts, you had um, uh, social organizations based in there. Um, I mean, all of these things generate a feeling of family. And when it's just, you're treated as just a worker, and there's no loyalty there. No loyalty from the worker. There's no loyalty from the customer. But as I said, I mean, it does, you have to invest. Did they have floor walkers? Because you usually see them kind of spoofed in sitcoms or cartoons. Was sure. there real floor walkers and what they do? Well, with floor walkers, um, are you, I mean, there's a different, I mean, you talk about like with security and whatnot, or people that drifted from, from um, department to department. Um, what exactly would you define floor walker? Well, I guess I'm usually thinking of the British sitcom that had in a department store where there's a stuffy floor walker around. Yeah, well, the, with floor walkers and like that, I mean, people usually knew who they were. And they would, I mean, whether they were stuffy or cranky or, or members of the, the executive team, people, whether you liked them or not, you knew they were there. And it was the familiarity of it. And yeah, you do hear some, some stories about, um, about, I mean, depending on what store that was around there, people just kind of, you know, whether they were, oh gosh, and here in Pomeroy's uh, in Harrisburg, you, that, you could even talk about the personalities of some of the people in, that, that waited on you, even in the tea room. I mean, there, um, there were some interesting characters. These stores had, with identity, you get characters. One of the things they had that uh, made them, uh, gave them identities was uh, storefront windows. Well, yes, storefront windows because that was part of the entertainment. And store windows, you walk by the store windows, that's your tradition, going down there, seeing these elaborate windows, you get the kids there, you stop. Don't go through the past the front door. Don't go past the front door. You stop there, and now you got to draw those customers in. Don't put toys right when you first walk in the door. You got to get them through the building. And that's all part of the planned experience of it. Unfortunately, um, again, service is an investment, and displays are an investment. And when you had to start whittling down expenses, these, these windows started to go away. And um, 
I remember talking to one department store family member that said, well, in, almost in hindsight, it's better to have never offered something than to have offered it at all. Because when, like places like Pomeroy's that were known for their windows, um, when they couldn't afford doing that, then it's like, well, how dare you take away a tradition? That's why the uh, Macy's, the old Wanamakers in Philadelphia, how dare they do anything to that organ or that eagle or that light show? They know better. And I'll give them credit. They're very good caretakers of that organ. But it's still the old Wanamakers. And, um, but they know tradition there. And that's important. Don't, it's, you know, people always expected these stores to be around. I mean, you just take it for granted. You weren't going there anymore. You really weren't but you expected them to, to be there. How dare they go away? It's hard, to, it's hard to run a business profitably just based on tradition. You say in the book that they used to change their window displays weekly. Sure, yeah. Well, you want to go back, exactly. Um, and they had a massive team of, uh, here with Pomeroy's of display workers. I mean, then again, display was an art form. It wasn't just draping a, a dress on a piece of canvas on a mannequin. You had people that were really invested in creativity. I mean, these windows, I mean, they would, some stores would buy old windows or use old windows from other department stores. Um, they would uh, have stores in New York that would then farm out their windows for the following year. Or places like Pomeroy's that had their in-house um, display department. That was a real creative aspect, I mean, for, for displays. So when you're doing all this churning around, it's really an art form. And yeah, you want to change your windows because you got to have people come back and see what's next. It's all entertainment. Did Pomeroy's ever try to take on the big cities, put stores in New York or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia? Uh, Pomeroy started to scratch at the suburbs in Philadelphia, especially with Levittown. They also had another store at Plymouth. No, Chamonix, excuse me. I don't want to give misinformation. <laughs> but they knew that their, their customer was in the center of Pennsylvania. And um, it's hard to compete. It, it, you know your customer. You know your market. Don't lose sight of that. Who was George Pomeroy? George Pomeroy was a very modest man who was of Scottish descent who was working in Hartford when he met Dives and Stewart. And when they came to... And when they came to Reading, I mean, he, 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 was, he wasn't, yeah, his name was well known. He did incorporate the business. He ended up buying out the partners, but he was able, I think he was a fairly good businessman because he knew when to sell out. And he wasn't really in for the glory of it. He did do a lot of philanthropy, especially in Reading, because that's where the family was based. And... Um, and it wasn't like John Stewart, his partner that came to Harrisburg to run the store here, who left after a few years because he developed malaria, blamed Harrisburg, blamed getting malaria in Harrisburg, and he left. But um, he was just, his name was probably more important than, than who he was, at least socially or as a fixture. How long was he running the store? He sold the business in the, um, in the early Let's see. Um, the son sold the business uh, not long after he bought it out from his p remaining partners. He, oh, he went and had a diabetic coma 
had it went into shock with the stress of it and the son took it over and or like ran the business it was like a year after he bought it did he did he pass away did he incorporate it but then um the son sold out in 1934 to the big conglomerate allied stores very big in a national backing but um the rumor was within the family that the store was in trouble it's the depression and it was a big operation so um so they, they, he knew when to get out, and the, the, the son stayed involved in the business until the late 1940s. The son, you say in the book, uh, became the chief executive of the company, worked alongside his father, while a student at Yale, George Jr. and Mead Minningerode co-wrote the famous Whiffenpoof song in 1908. <laughs> that is true. Now you look up the Yale Whiffenpoof song. Um, don't make me sing it. I have some friends in Connecticut. Is that we the tried word, poor little lambs that have lost our way? Is that what? Is that, I mean, it, I think <laughs> it is. We looked it up online, and, you know, and, and one of our friends, I mean, did go to Yale, and we were trying to, he was trying to remember it and sing it. That it, you do look up the Whiff and Poof song. I mean, because it's like, the, it's an all-male um, singing a cappella group that would go, and, um, and it's still a tradition there. But yeah, that is one of his credits. I mean, it's hard to write a book about Pomeroy's and not mention something like that. I, I don't, I should also say that with the books, I mean, this is seven books I've now written on department stores. It's fun, fun, fun. And it's hard to, to get involved in the family. I don't think it's my place to talk always, uh, to, to, to really like, detail the family too much. I'm looking at the business. Uh, and that's what got me on with Wanamakers. I don't mean to go off on a, on a diatribe or, 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 or channel okay. things differently with Wanamakers. There are some great books on the man, justifiably so. What a pioneer. Didn't like, didn't, didn't like being called a merchant prince. He liked being called a, a, a pioneer. That was, that was, I guess, more humbling for him. But um, there's some great books about him as a person. And... There were no, nothing in a, in a literary form. God, it's, it's hard to call myself literature. But I, <laughs> it is, I guess. But um, about that documents the business. And that's what I wanted to do with this. But of course you have to talk about the families. There's some real characters in the Wanamaker family. And, um, and that, with all these books, I am a little bit more, I want to tell the story of the store. But of course the family's intertwined in there. But um, yeah. That's fun, and it's fun tracking down family members. Most of them like to talk. Well, yeah, for this uh, Pomeroy's book, you got uh, Al Boskov, mm -hmm. a competitor, to write the introduction. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I, what am I, I mean, I, I look at what people have called. I've been, I can't tell you the amount of press that I've been in, even on a program like this. What am I doing here? I'm a musician with the Baltimore Symphony. That's my job. An oboe player. I, that is my identity. I'm an oboist. That's, um, but I just had this interesting passion. What defines, and then it kind of got out of the closet because too many people were saying, you've got to write a book about this. You know too much. You know too much. And, um, and that's why it gives you this credibility. What defines an expert? When we first met, like, well, I don't know what defines an expert. I've become an expert. And that's given me this credibility to meet somebody like Al Boscov. What an amazing person, not only as a, per, a personal, as who he is, but the fact that he's a merchant. He's not sitting in some glamour suite. 
um, one around the board table, just kind of sipping anything. I don't know. He's sitting in the back of the Reading East Boscov store, surrounded by advertising copy. That's his passion. What a, I mean, look at what he's done, how he even resurrected that company after the family made a misstep and got back in there to, to get it back on track. He knows his store. He knows his employees. He's dedicated to them. They're dedicated to him. What an honor just to, to even meet him and um, to have him involved in this book is even more so. And... Um, yeah, that's the kind of thing that really gets me going. Yes, meeting these family members, meeting these important employees, past employees, but getting to know people, meet people like Al Boscoff, it's incredible. What gives me the right to be sitting with him? It's fun. Well, experts such as you are, <laughs> can you go, based on what you've learned by writing these books, can you go in department stores now and tell what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong? Uh, yes. But then again, like what department stores are even, I hate to say what department stores are even left. Now we call them big box retailers and, and whatnot, um, of course. And people ask me what's going on. I love, um, I get um, some national outlets will ask me about JCPenney. CBS Sunday mornings in my living room. I'm an oboist with the Baltimore Symphony. What is CBS Sunday morning doing in my living room asking me about my advice about JCPenney or Sears? We could spend hours just talking about those two retailers now. But certainly, you can, if retailers can just get a little, return back to their roots and what they do, what they did, and um, pay a little more attention to that. Some of the obvious stuff, whether it's washing your windows or investing in some paint, that sounds so petty and small. We could start there and go towards what, how to draw a customer into your store. Go back to making it an experience. And to, we're, we're, we're always looking for answers. There can be some easier answers that can make these, these retailers do a little better job. The hard job is fighting the internet and trying to, to be relevant. That's a, such a big term in our lives everywhere. But making a mark on the internet internet equals relevance. Are, are customers now willing to pay more money for a more elegant shopping experience or class quality instead of just cheap? I mean, that is a good question um, because we are so trained not to leave our, our living rooms. I mean, even as a member of a symphony orchestra, we struggle, not struggle, but we work hard to get people out of their living rooms to come have entertainment. And you know, movie theaters are the same way. You know, I got to get them, get them out. Um, so it, it 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 is a challenge. And getting, I'm trying to think back to your initial question with that. I mean, if you can remind me what you just initially asked, because of are course, people I'm, are people willing to pay more money? Are people for willing to pay more money for quality? I think they're willing to pay more money for service. They, what you can't get on the internet is service. You cannot have questions answered. You can't try anything on. And in that, see, you can't really, unless you're competing exactly with a place like Amazon. Um, you have to have different type of merchandise. You better have some unique merchandise and you better have it available. And you better have somebody willing to know what that is. That's when it sets you apart. But keep them in there. Um, money, I mean, we're such a, 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 a money-based society. 
So um, you better offer something different. So it's a different ball game now. It's a different ball game. Sears really had the market for how many decades? They're the Amazon of, of 1900. Farmers and stuff um, mail ordering their merchandise. One of the things I liked about Sears, learning about Sears, the history of Sears, you can't discriminate through the mail. And you had a lot of lower income and minority customers that were able to trade fairly through the mail with Sears. A little more loyalty there over the years. And that's something that I never really thought of. But look what Sears is. I mean, if we want to have a program in Sears, invite me back. I want Sears to keep the, I, yeah, I mean, it's part of our heritage. But they've lost their way. How well did Pomeroy's do uh, converting from the center city shopper to the suburban shopper? I think Pomeroy's was kind of a little bit of an anomaly when you look at other department stores in this country because they held on to their downtown locations for so long. And then the experts will say, too long. I mean, they really, um, they operated almost exclusively downtown locations up until the late 1960s. And they had a lot of them. I mean, let, let's not look at Levittown, but look at Reading, Harrisburg, Wilkes-Barre, um, and then Pottsville. But you've also, they, they assumed other locations in Lebanon and also Easton. They were operating these downtown stores that, um, that they kind of knew. And that's maybe because, I mean, people who had a lot of working class customers living in downtowns, look at Hess's in Allentown. They still had, at the time, they closed in 96 as that business. But there still were, was a good um, uh, 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 residential base nearby. But um, once, I mean, Camp Hill. The, the cover of my book is the store in Camp Hill. Pomeroy's Camp Hill. I could tell you a little bit why that had to be in, uh, in a second if you want. But when they opened that store in 1968, you know that that's going to take business away from downtown. You, you know say that it that's going to. Four miles from their downtown yeah. store. Yes. Not very four, far. Not far, not far at all. And, oh, is that going to be. Well, uh, we'll get to Camp Hill in a second. But yeah, I mean, is that. Do uh, you know that there's going to take trade away from downtown? Inevitably. And plus, people are going to be interested at first to see what this is. And it wasn't attached to a shopping mall. Ooh, how is that going to succeed? But little did they know that half, the, half of the volume of the downtown store was immediately reduced. Immediately. This is in Harrisburg. That shows you how vulnerable the inner city store, inner city businesses were here in Harrisburg. Um, and that's, that's dramatic. Compared to other uh, compared to other cities in, in other states of, of equal size, not the state we have equal size, but cities of equal size, and I think people here in central Pennsylvania were craving a different experience. It hung on too long in, in Reading downtown without branching out into the suburbs. Did they do the same thing in other cities? Did they have a an out in the suburbs Wilkes-Barre store and an out in the suburbs Reading store? Yeah, in Reading, though, the main mall, that Berkshire Mall, is just a couple miles away. And when that mall opened in 1970, I believe, off the top of my head, they decided not to invest in it because they felt that there was still some hope in, in enhancing Reading's downtown business district. No. And um, so they didn't go into Berkshire Mall at first. And it was a misstep because they thought that they still 
there was still worth and value, and they also felt that they owed it to Reading. That's the thing, these businesses, I mean, they're part of the community. You know, you leave a, you leave a business, you leave a hole in the center of a city, people will shake their heads and shame on you. Well, when Pomeroy's was sold to Allied, did they lose some of that? Did they lose their identity and be managed from a distance? No, when Pomeroy's was taken over by Allied in 1934, um, they, Allied kept, was very important with like executive training programs and keeping managements in place. Um, the way it was operated very differently than some other conglomerates like Federated Department Stores or the May Department Stores Company. They really kept local management intact and they had a certain report system, um, just uh, how it worked corporately. So um, they were able to keep a lot of their flavor but still learn what was successful in other cities. What were the other stores that Allied owned? Any other department stores in this area? Well, I mean, if you're going to look in, in Pennsylvania, I mean, Troutman's was a sister store. That's out of Greensburg. That's the other thing. You got this huge thing in Greensburg. Greensburg, which you kind of drive through now, but that was a city. And you had a big investment there. Other stores, I mean, its biggest store, if you're familiar with Boston, would be Jordan Marsh. Uh, Stearns outside of, in New York. Uh, they I tried it, tried it a little bit in in Pennsylvania um, and Philadelphia, I should say. And um, uh, if you want to go through this, this the country, Joskies, San Antonio, Teich, Gettinger, Dallas, they had some big operations. So you don't just pay attention to department stores in Pennsylvania, no. the, the north. Oh no, that's what I say. Fun. Um, there was a website, Jan Whitaker, who's an author now a dear friend, um, she had a website that she started in uh, probably in the late 2000s that I stumbled on called departmentstorehistory.net. And there was like a question, people were ask, writing in and asking questions about department store history. And then you think at the same time, my God, someone else cares. Because you think this is just like some strange hobby that no one else could possibly like or know. And you realize there's relief knowing that you're not alone. And I knew some of these questions that were, remain, that were remaining unanswered. And the sad thing is, or the, the scary thing is, is I have the nation's largest newspaper archive on my, in my house in Baltimore on department stores, all categorized by state, city, store name. It's an obsession, it's a passion, whatever. And um, so I had these questions and I could have started answering. It's like a Dear Abby column. And it's fun, and it's, it's about history. And that's what kind of got me into knowing that it's a safe place, because people are still, it's part of their identity, and it's part of their childhood, as it was part of mine. And um, older people, I'm not gonna deny that these books cater to a more mature audience. Fine. Um, I don't even have an e-reader. I got seven books on <laughs> that I don't even own an e-reader. I probably should, but I'm old school. I need to hold a book. I need to hold a paper. And that's what, since these, these experiences with me personally revolve so much around my mother, who's no longer here, um, it's really touching when people come up and want to talk to you about their family relations and their experience. It's just great. I just, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just great having people open up to you and um, having the door open up to you and getting in like with celebrities. I'm talking to Ed Rendell. He's calling me from the car. We're talking about Wanamakers. You met him, meet his wife at the Eagle, ex-wife uh, at the Eagle. And you know, it's fun. I mean, you, you, you open, your, the door gets opened because people 
you know, they, they put their guard down when they think about these old institutions. What's in your newspaper archive that you have at your house? What is? I mean, it's basically it's the news articles. I go, um, I love going to libraries. And you start when you Xerox. You go looking, because I love microfilm. Even as a kid, I used to sit there in the library just looking at advertisements. That was cool. I'm like 10 years old. I'm looking at old advertisements. And the first place you go is you look at, you find when stores close. Because that's when the eulogies start. People reminisce. And it's when they started to fall. Um, they started to close because you think these things are here forever. And so that's where I start. And then you go back from there. I love being a... Um, being a, a, a detective, because many newspapers, because I, I believe in newspapers, I believe in newspapers today, because they're locally based. I know we get back to that term relevance. They're relevant to me, and I believe that they're relevant to communities. They're just struggling to, to find out where exactly they, how they're fitting into things these days, especially with technology. But um, with, you find, you, I love going to Library of Congress, you find that hit. You find out through detective when something closes, and then you go back and try to find a year. There's nothing more rewarding than, than stumbling on information that you know that nobody else knows. And newspapers give you the exact dates of when things happened, and they give you the emotion surrounding certain events, whether it's an opening or a closing. And that's what I love. I think these books, as they tell stories, it's hard to tell a story without an emotion. And that's what I tried to, to convey in these. And that's where interviews and um, whether it's customers or employees, they share their emotion. Are you a connoisseur of uh, department store advertising? Um, I, when I used to look at department store advertising, I, I, would, um, I would look more at locations and hours and stuff. And just because that used to excite me as a kid. Where else could we go? But you could always, it's very reflective when you look at advertising to see what type of store it was. And getting back to displays, you also see when, when ads went from hand-drawn ads to photograph ads. And you see, um, you could see how the shift of the store, doesn't necessarily mean technology-wise, but those that still, you look at New York Times and you'll look at more of the boutiques that are still drawing, that still create, has a certain cachet with it because it has a certain art and glamour with it. Once we start switching over to photographs, and they, it turns more into sell, sell, sell. So you can that that aspect I, I did. There was a store in Baltimore, Hutzler's, my first book. Little did I know that it was going to outsell Daniel Steele in 2009 for the Christmas season. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy because I didn't think anybody still cared or remembered about the place. But talking about advertising there, they had this woman, Hazel Croner, that hand drew the ads back in the 1960s. And they were one of the first stores to do a bikini ad. But the Baltimore Sun would not publish a bikini, uh, belly button. They would not publish it. She submitted it to the paper. She sees the proof. Where's the belly button? The Sun papers do not publish a belly button. Huge fight. I mean, come on, look at the passion behind this. And, but they agreed not to, they did not publish it, but the, the um, the editor of the paper came over to the store and gave the plate that had the belly button to her as kind of a peace offering. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was about art. It was about family. These stores had family and these stores were entertainment and they were palaces of art, especially if you look at John Wanamaker. Look at that Kaufman's in Pittsburgh, Frank Lloyd Wright, 
The office was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Falling Water was their place. Oh, the family owned yeah. Falling Water. Yeah. I mean, those were, come on, we, we don't have these, we don't have these, these, these um, community-minded people that were really dedicated to bettering the community. I'm bettering the community. I'll put that in quotation marks. Um, like these department store retail families. They're incredible people. You mentioned the hours you're interested in that. What kind of hours would these department stores take, keep? <laughs> See, that's also, you get to find out when they're, you can, this is just kind of crazy. You can find when a department store is starting to teeter. I mean, now department store ads, they don't put hours and locations on there because it's all made in a central place. But you get to see where shopping nights, when they remove a shopping night, you're seeing, ooh, that's in trouble. Or you could see when the nights are, oh, in Philadelphia, Monday and Wednesdays are shopping nights. They're not open nights anymore. That's not a good sign. People don't want to go downtown. And you see where the more popular suburban stores, see, this is a crazy teenager going through my head when I'm analyzing this. And you get to see which of the suburban stores are doing better because they're open longer, they're open later. I mean, my mother, my brothers used to always tease me because my mother would always ask me whether it was a grocery store or a, or a department store, how late are they open tonight? And I, just like any department store name in this country, I always was able to answer the question. I got a lot of harassment by my brothers for that. So the downtown stores had one or two nights a week that they were open and they were, would close? Yeah, just, to, I mean. Like I mean six o'clock? Yes, days. it wasn't about like, I mean, it was a, okay, look at it socially before women really entered the workforce um, in, a, in a massive way. That's when, you know, the, the stores, if they were doing the shopping, they didn't need the night hours. They didn't need it. And a lot of stores, even in the summertime, closed on Saturday afternoons. These places weren't open Sunday, heaven forbid. A lot of stores closed their closed their, their um, display windows and black curtains on Sunday. You weren't supposed to be entertaining yourself like that. But um, those are the little more hardcore, um, hardcore with uh, a little more fundamental owners. But um, yeah, I mean, you didn't, they didn't need the hours. They didn't have the competition. They weren't competing for business. You mentioned in here, I have to, I have to read this one. Um, Buyer Pat Eichhorn recalls how the ladies' toilets in the basement of Pomeroy's had ultraviolet lights over the toilet seats. When you flush the toilet, the light would turn on and kill the germs on the toilet seats. Yes, I'm sure, that I'm sure it's scientifically proven. <laughs> All those little things there, though. I mean, you'll want to see how these toilet seats work. I mean, if, it's crazy to call that entertainment. What about how many people will talk about the little x-ray machine you put your feet in so you could see what type of shoes you were supposed to wear? Let the hear of Pomeroy's. Wow, 1959 here in Harrisburg, they put the, the first escalator in town. They get a TWA pilot there showing people, how children, how to ride the escalator. And you'd earn your little wings if you successfully rode the escalator. All those, the, those little things, it was just, that was all part of entertainment. Yeah, and I guess, I guess those toilet seats were entertainment. <laughs> Why the oboe? Um, maybe because I thought it was different. And that's maybe, boy, I'm just like having a revelation here because I like things that are different. And all these different department stores, there was a time where everything was different and it was okay to be different. And I saw somebody in, when I was, oh gosh, I played the flute in fourth grade, did not like that. But somebody played the oboe. And I thought, that, that's 
that's interesting, what is that? And I, I fell off a favor after a while. My parents gave me one for Christmas. And I lucked into a very great um, teacher growing up. And it was just something that I, I liked. And it just, uh, and did well at. And um, yeah, you develop a passion for music. Don't do anything if you don't have a passion. I do have a passion for stores. And I have a passion for music. I, I can't say I like making reeds and doing all the stuff that you got to do to play the oboe, to do it well. You have to but, make your own reeds? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's a whole other story. Yes. But, I mean, you're, I call it a forced hobby. I'm not a whittler. My father would be great at it. Or my other brother that doesn't do anything with music. And, um, yeah. But that just comes with the territory. But, um, yeah. I, I, I enjoy being an oboist, but I enjoy having two lives now. Is the, the Baltimore Symphony a full-time job? Baltimore Symphony is a full-time job. It's one of the nation's top orchestras um, in terms of length of season and, um, and the amount of concerts we do. We do uh, three to four concerts every week. We're 52-week season. Uh, we have uh, many recordings, um, many tours, make our Carnegie Hall appearances, try to do that once a year. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a great orchestra. I mean, coming there, getting that job for the first time and just doing that, that's great. It is a job, though. It's a lot of work, and there's stress involved. I'm not going to deny that. But, um, and it's like, you know, people say, oh, I enjoy doing what you do. It's work. It's work. And, um, but, yeah, it's, it, it's a, it can be a good job. It's an interesting job. How many oboists in the orchestra? There's four oboists. There's, um, one of them is primarily an English horn player which is the larger instrument. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, in, in an orchestra like the size of ours, being, being the, the, the size that it is, um, we need all those players. But you know, here in Harrisburg, you got a great orchestra with the Harrisburg Symphony. In Reading, you also have another well-respected orchestra and the former um, assistant conductor of, of Baltimore conducts the Reading Symphony. And it's just, yeah, they're a part of our communities. Lancaster is a great orchestra. Um, let's keep, keep them going. There's one more orchestra question. Yeah. For, for the amount of time you spend, for each hour you spend with the orchestra rehearsing, how much time do you spend sitting on your own working things out? Um, I'm a bad practicer, so, but, um, so I, 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 and anybody of my friends that are watching that will roll their head if I answer anything on that. Because, um, because I mean, you do, I mean, you think, oh, you don't work that much during the week. I mean, when you, when you pull it hour for hour, but you are taking stuff home. Sometimes in the week, you know, the program you know. Sometimes you're going to struggle with it. I mean, it all depends. I, I mean, I, I, I battle some real arthritic problems from just holding up the instrument. And that's always, and there's a lot of, like, you know, what, like disability can play in there. There's a lot of injury, repetitive injury. And just like small little motions, whether it's a bow or doing this. But, um, you know, I mean, we're working more than 40 hours a week. And, but it's hard to, I mean, people just see you playing a concert a week thinking, well, that's not that much. But um, yeah, we're working hard. What composers do you really like playing and which ones do you not like playing? Are there some well-known composers you just don't care if you ever play again? I am really not a fan of Chopin and Liszt, but I know that other people do like them. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not gonna diss them but really, the composer that really draws to me would be Bach. And I'm not saying that because that's an easy answer. Bach. Just sit there and listen to Bach. Listen how 
simple and beautiful a Bach melody is. And that'll just, that'll kind of bring things together. If you want excitement though, do some of those Respighi pieces, those larger, the full orchestra or chamber orchestra pieces by Respighi, I love that. Bach, some, nothing calms the savage beast like Bach. And I do mean that. Well, we mentioned briefly the Wanamaker's book that you did a couple years back. And uh, I learned from your book that uh, Wanamaker's was, was it the first store to give a money back guarantee? Um, arguably, I mean, he really, his mentor was um, the Alexander Turney Stewart out there in, in New York. I mean, he really, and also a lot of these retailers were, were Jewish. Wanamaker was not. I mean, you, it's funny, you go out to places like Phoenix and there's Goldwaters and you go to Sacramento and there's wine stocks and you're thinking those aren't very California-ish names, but they were merchant, uh, they were peddlers. And many of them were Jewish by, because that, that was their trade when they came over. Um, but Wanamaker was um, uh, evangelical Protestant. And, he, and so was Alexander Turney Stewart. So he based a lot of his early principles on that. And that was important to Stewart. So yes, he is, whether he was the first, we can sit and debate it. But yes, that was a very early, unusual pr um, premise of his business practice. Oh, you say that he visited, John Wanamaker visited Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory. By Christmas 1978, Wanamaker's was the first store in the world to be lighted by electricity. Yeah. I mean, there's just the, the with Wanamaker's, I, I, I don't, I, gosh, it's been so long since I've opened that book, but there is a, there, when you go into the Wanamaker archives at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, you go through some wonderful um, marketing um, information on the business and the lists of firsts. With, with Wanamaker's is incredible, from electricity to, um, oh gosh, I don't know if there'd be Mother's Day without him. There wouldn't be a white sale without him. The first um, uh, um, the first um, communication, um, a, a satellite communication between the, was between, in the country, um, was between the New York store and the Philadelphia store. I mean, there's just so much, I mean, he was all into, uh, with, with um, navigation. Yeah, I mean, these were real, they weren't just sitting there buying merchandise and counting the change. These were really interesting people. What did, uh, where, how did the Eagle come about? The Eagle was part of, well, it's also, I mean, well, it's from the 1904 um, St. Louis uh, World's Fair exposition. The it Eagle was, was out there. The Eagle was, mm -hmm. along with the organ, which was the world's largest pipe organ at the time. The company that built it, the Los Angeles Art Organ Company, even went bankrupt just building initially putting that. But the Eagle was something that Son Rodman went out there, looked to see what was there as like, how can we, he wanted to turn his store into, he wanted to bring art to the people. That store in Philadelphia is built in all sections. And the Eagle was a piece of art, a very heavy piece of art with over 6,000 bronze feathers. And, um, and that, was, that was all part of that 1904 exposition. And yeah, you know, th there's no benches at that eagle. We say "meet me at the eagle." That's at that's such a common phrase. There's no benches there because people would hang there a little bit too long. That organ was ten thousand pipes when they first brought it, and it just wasn't loud enough for John's um, and his son's uh, wishes, and they increased it to like twenty-eight thousand pipes. It's amazing. It's now owned by um, Macy's. Macy's. Are they kind of stuck with the organ and they, I mean, what choice do they have? What choice do they have? The only choice they have, and that's to keep the organ and to maintain the organ because the organ has such a wonderful support group, the Friends of the Wanamaker Organ. Um, one of the most 
underappreciated, I think, or underrecognized um, uh, art organizations in the city of Philadelphia. But what do you do? You can't take that out of there. That brings people in there. Oh, imagine the holy terror if they took that out of there. The eagle. If they were to, uh, there was a man that in there that ran that, came in in 1968 to run president of Wanamakers. He wanted to remove the eagle. Too old-fashioned. He was out of there. It was out of there within a few months. You can't really, you, at least at that point, with the loyalty, you can't, you couldn't change what Wanamakers was. The uh, Macy's, I do believe, they know what um, theater is. Look at their parade, Thanksgiving Day parade. They know what that means, that that's an important investment. The organ and the eagle and those traditions are an investment, and it brings people into that store. The store now, the current store that was Wanamaker's, now Macy's, was uh, 1911. It was dedicated by President William Howard Taft. The only department store ever dedicated by a president. And people don't, if you're in that store, still there, go over, or you're facing the organ, look down to the right. I don't know, it's probably like handbags now. They move some things around, and you see the little star where, um, where, where Taft stood. And, um, but that's what was cool. Here I am, an oboist with the Baltimore S Symphony, speaking at the centennial, giving the lecture, the centennial lecture in the Grand Court in, in June 2011. Who am I? But that's cool. I mean, because I'd like to think I've done my homework. And, um, and it's fun telling a story. Well, we should, uh, before we run out of time, talk about your Gimbel's book. I guess these are your three most recent books, Gimbel's, Pomeroy's, and Wanmaker's. Well, I got Woodward and Lothrop out of D.C. These are the Pennsylvania books. And, yes, Philadelphia was home to Gimbel's. It was, even though it started in Vincennes, Indiana, and went to Milwaukee. Before, I mean, it was in Philadelphia before it went to New York. And then they went to Pittsburgh. They went to Pittsburgh in in the late 20s, took over a business that was faltering. And it was part of their feeling, ooh, let's go national. But they realized that the family was stretched too thin and they weren't able to get a foothold and definition in Pittsburgh that they wanted to. So um, yeah, Gimbel's, that's another place. How could, there, how could Gimbel's go away? Macy's versus Gimbel's, everybody, but everybody loves Gimbel's Miracle on 34th Street. How is Gimbel's going to go away? When I was at the Aspen Music Festival in 1986 as a kid and heard that Gimbel's was actually closing after rumors of, yeah, they're going to close Gimbel's, then you knew that these places weren't, weren't forever. And the fact that, the, um, that there was not a book that covered the story of Gimbel's, then that's what drew me to Gimbel's. And... Um, Luckily, with Gimbel's and Wanamaker's, there was kind of an archive, marketing archive. People fought to keep some things. Pomeroy's, no. And that's what was part of the challenge of it. But that means you, you fall to people, you fall to employees that can send you to God, talk to this person, you talk to that person. I put the pictures in there. I worked hard in that book to get together. Not every image is in that book that I wish I could have but I worked hard trying to get what I could. So I'm proud of the Pomeroy's book. It was barely available this Christmas. Couldn't keep up with that demand. But um, yeah, I worked, uh, so if anybody's saying, oh, why wasn't there a picture of Toyland of this? Trust me, I looked, I looked. Well, when did the Pomeroy story end? 
Pomeroy's, well, it's Bonton that took over, that acquired Pomeroy's in 1987. They kept the name, simil, um, they kept the name Pomeroy's up until 1990. And that's when, it felt like it was, took three years for them to assimilate the businesses, to kind of merge the businesses. Now, you just change things overnight. But um, in, in January 1990, the, one in, the store in Harrisburg met its final closing. But um, there's still a lot of people in Camp Hill that will refer to that store not far away from here as the old Pomeroy's. And, um, you know, we're, uh, old habits die hard. And I think Macy's knows that in Philadelphia with its, with its business there. And these places, I'm happy to say, have, they're still alive in memories. And they'll, they'll be there. And I just want to document their, their, these stores, these stories. I think they're worthy of documentation. And which are the other ones you wrote about? Uh, Hutzler's was the first one. That's where I thought no one cared. Wow, six printings in, in a month and a half. Um, Wanamaker's Gimbel's Filene's in Boston. Um, see, I always have, I, I forget what I've even written. Baltimore's bygone department stores. Everybody kept saying, go back to Baltimore, go back to Baltimore. So I finished up with what I did about with Baltimore, with the other stores, Woodward and Lothrop, Pomeroy's, and now I'm working on two simultaneous projects. One is Moss Brothers out of Tampa, Florida, which is fun. And I'm writing the 100th anniversary book of the Baltimore Symphony. Baltimore Symphony turns 100 on February 11th, 2016, and that book will hopefully be out as planned in November 2015. It's a whole different type of, not a whole different type of book, because it's telling a story, but it's a different subject matter. And um, yeah, so that's not really a challenge, but it's, a, it's something else. But I didn't want to drop the department store aspect for, for a year. I'm on a roll. Got to keep them going. Got to keep them going. And you said there's no book about Kaufman's? No, someone needs to write a book about Kaufman's. Come on, Pittsburgh. Um, that's an amazing family. It's up there almost with the Carnegie's, the Mellons, and the Heinz's. Um, great store. The business is still there as a Macy's, getting a little downsized. But um, that's a family that, that, that need, that store that needs to be documented. I look forward to hopefully reading that one day. Is there a department store you can go to today and get some semblance of the old department store atmosphere okay um besides going to like that that uh on a smaller scale yeah go to wilkes go to the boskovs in downtown wilkes you're not going to find anything like that um and al boskov knows it's a piece of history it's downtown it's the former boston store it's an operation needs to gonna keep it going but it's it's a great piece of history in downtown wilkes and needs to be supported well, that'll have to be the last word. We are out of time. We've been speaking to Michael Lisicki. He is the author of many books on department stores. We've been mostly talking about this one, Shop Pomeroy's First. Michael Lisicki, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.